As you look around the world, you tend to see two different kinds of people, two different groups of people. One group believes that God is not at all involved in history. And another group believes that God controls history. Two radically different perspectives. The first group believes that either God doesn't exist or if he does exist, as I say, he's really not involved. And history is just cyclical, endless cycles of meaningless existence fueled by the process of evolution. For these people, there's really no purpose in life. There is no ultimate plan. They really have no destiny. If you stop and think about it, they ultimately believe that they are merely sophisticated germs that came into existence by accident and have evolved over billions of years by random chance. There's no design to anything because there's no designer. There's no creator. And certainly there's no judge to whom we would be accountable So therefore, there's really no ultimate consequences to anything that we do. So the philosophy that flows out of that worldview is that we can eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The vast majority of the world holds to this view. The second group, however, that believes God controls history, believes that God is indeed the creator, the sustainer. And the consummator of history. These people would be called Bible-believing fundamentalists. No doubt the most hated group of people on the planet. These people believe that history has a beginning and it has an end. That history is linear, not cyclical. And that everything everything is moving toward a final day of consummation. And everything is being controlled by a sovereign God who is working out his plan to ultimately glorify himself. And they would even go so far as to say that that particular plan of God is delineated in one book called the Bible. Well, if you are in group one, The claims of the Bible will be utter foolishness to you and the hundreds of prophecies that are found in the Bible that were fulfilled literally to this date will be nothing more than an amazing set of coincidences. For you, there's really no hope in anything except perhaps your own perceived goodness that maybe will make you acceptable to God if in fact he even exists But frankly, you know nothing about God and your life, therefore, if you're honest, is filled with the endless pursuit of pleasure until your days of randomness and meaninglessness are over. But if you are in that second group, and obviously I am one of those in that second group, The Bible to you is the word of the living God, and you long to know all you possibly can about his plan, especially his plan for you. 
and you crave every tidbit of insight that is available in this glorious record, this infallible record of our sovereign God who has revealed himself to us, you want to know as many details as you possibly can about his coming because he has promised to come again. And you will therefore be like the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3 that said to the Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, certainly, if you're in the first group, I challenge you this morning as you listen to ask God to reveal himself to you, because down deep, you know that what you are hearing is truth and you know that he exists as hard as you may try to suppress that reality. And someday you will either stand before him as your savior or as your judge, and that choice will be yours. But for those of you who join me in the second group, I challenge you today to join me as we embark upon an amazing journey into the future. And I pray that you will be like an adventurer committed to going to an undiscovered region, an undiscovered land, and that you'll be willing to do the hard work of Bible study so that you can see all of the wonderful truths that God has for you. And together, we will scale the glorious mount of prophetic truth over the months to follow until we get to a point where we can gaze out upon all of the glories of God's sovereign plan. And we will be able to see our glorious King face to face in the pages of Scripture. So I would invite you this morning to turn to Matthew's Gospel We come back to the Gospel of Matthew that we've been studying verse by verse for a couple of years now. And we finally have come to a place in Matthew chapter 24 where we will begin to understand this great discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest prophetic discourse that he gave to us when he was here on earth. And it's for this reason that I've entitled this sermon, which will be part one of several to follow. I've entitled this Christ's greatest prophetic discourse. Now, before we look at the text this morning, and by the way, I'm going to give you a general overview of what we're going to study over the months to follow. So we won't get real immersed in the text, even though we will some. But let me give you the context so that you remember what has been going on in the life of our Lord there in that first century. Previously, in our study of Matthew 23, we have observed Jesus in the temple courts. He has cleansed the temple. He has debated with the Pharisees. They have tucked their tails between their legs in embarrassment. They hate him with a hatred that is almost beyond description. They are plotting to kill him. It is now Wednesday evening of the Passion Week in Matthew 23, in the final hours of Jewish rejection, when Jesus gave his last public sermon. And in that last sermon, he detailed very clearly his denunciation of false shepherds, which would have been the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders that represented apostate Israel. 
And after pronouncing seven curses of divine judgment upon them, he concluded in one final and climactic pronouncement, saying to them in verse 33 of Matthew 23, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? And he then gave one final proclamation in verses 34 through 36, where he promised judgment would fall upon that generation of people where indeed all of the multiplied wrath of God throughout redemptive history up to that point in time would be poured out upon those people of that day. And indeed, just 40 years later in A.D. 70, over 50,000 elite Roman troops marched upon Jerusalem. They immediately captured 500 of the Jewish leaders. Some of them, no doubt, were the very ones that Jesus had just denounced. They captured those men and they crucified them. And then they systematically slaughtered 1.1 million Jews. And they also took 100,000 Jewish people to Egypt, glutting the market of slavery. Now, of course, what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23 a prediction of these things that were about to happen, were utterly shocking to them. But these things were infuriating to the religious elite and all of their followers. But what is interesting, and you must understand this before we look at Matthew 24, that Jesus concluded his deadly pronouncement upon Israel with a farewell promise. Indeed, in verse 36 of Matthew 23, he says, your house, in other words, the temple is being left to you desolate. But in verse 39, he says, I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice again, Jesus did not say unless, but until there is a glorious promise here. There is a promise of a future day of conversion, a future day of genuine repentance and belief. And all of this is now promised to them. It's it's all been carved, shall we say, in the granite of divine sovereignty. Now, Jesus gives no hint as to when the interval of time is wholly indeterminate. He simply says, until... In fact, he used the very text the multitudes quoted only a few days earlier, remember, in his triumphal entry, that of Psalm 118, verse 26, when they said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying that there is going to be a time when you are going to say what you once said in ignorance and unbelief, you will say it in full knowledge and genuine faith. So after his scathing denunciation of their religious hypocrisy, of their phony religious system. And after his ominous prediction of the temple's demise, he concludes with a message of hope. And then he quietly withdraws from the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees and all of the multitudes there in the temple courtyard. Now, if you had been a disciple in that day, following Jesus, and you just heard all of this, And you were absolutely convinced that he was the Messiah and that he was ready to set up his kingdom and conquer Rome. What would you be doing right now? Well, you would be scratching your head in utter confusion. 
what is going on. Obviously, this prediction of judgment upon Israel's in, uh, uh, temple aroused an intense desire in the disciples for more information. Obviously, they're going to be thinking, well, wait a minute. What will be the nature and the duration of, of this desolation, of Israel's desolation? If we have no temple, we, we have no religious system. God, what, what are you doing here? What is going to happen? What do you mean that you shall not see me until we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? They, they just said that a few days ago. You see... In their mindset, their Messiah King had just passed final judgment upon the nation of Israel. And the disciples are now confused about the kingdom. They're wondering in their minds and in their hearts, Jesus, you're the Messiah. When are you going to flex the inexorable power of your might and destroy the enemies of Israel and establish your glorious kingdom? This is what is on their mind. Notice what happens next in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Mark and Luke add further insight as to what really happened with this departure from the Temple Mount. They obviously came off the mount, they came down the Cadron Valley, and they began their steep ascent up to the Mount of Olives, the slope of the Mount of Olives. And perhaps they kind of stopped, as I had to do the first time I made that very trek. Kind of stop and catch your breath a little bit, and you look back over at that Temple Mount. And Mark and Luke add that the disciples were pointing to the temple and they said, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, you must understand, indeed, this was an amazing piece of architecture. Herod the Great, as villainous as he was, had a real penchant for opulence and for architecture. And he had spent a fortune refurbishing the modest temple structure that had been erected many years before in the reign of Cyrus by the Jews that had returned from Babylon. In fact, Herod was even putting the final touches of the temple during the, on, onto the temple during the days of Jesus. He finally finished it in 64 A.D., only six years before it was utterly destroyed. It was a magnificent architecture that the disciples were looking at and that Jesus was looking at. Some of the stones measured 40 feet by 12 by 12 and weighed up to 100 tons. And even now you can look at the stones that remain around 
the the actual uh, grounds of the building. They weren't part of the uh, of the temple itself. All of those stones were destroyed, but there was a re- retaining wall around it that you can see to this day. And even those massive stones all fit together perfectly. It's an amazing piece of architecture. But in that day, the walls were a luminous white marble that glistened in the sun with decorations on them of pure gold. Wealthy worshipers contributed countless precious stones and and priceless ornaments to adorn the walls of that day. The opulence, dear friends, was utterly mind-boggling. Its splendid grandeur was even described in the Babylonian Talmud, stated, and, and they state there, quote, He that never saw the temple of Herod never saw a fine building. In fact, the eastern side of the temple that would have been visible to Jesus and the disciples was one that was covered with pure gold. Can you imagine that? And when the sun would rise in the morning, it would cast a golden reflection all along the whole western slope of the Mount of Olives. So this was an astonishing edifice. And they now viewed it from the adjacent mountain, from the Mount of Olives. And all of this combined with what Jesus had just solemnly predicted, that this house, this temple is going to be left desolate, and that not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. All of this caused enormous confusion to the disciples. By the way, history records that when the Romans attacked the Temple Mount, they set fire to the main structure And that fire was so hot that the stones literally crumbled into powder. And again, the stones that we see today are merely the retaining wall stones around the temple. And after the stones had all turned to powder, obviously all of the precious stones and the gold and the silver was left there upon the ground and they sifted through all of that. So indeed, just as Jesus promised, not one stone was left remaining. In fact... The ancient historian Josephus remarked that when the Roman army finished with the temple area, that it looked like a wilderness that had never been inhabited. So, to the disciples now, all of their messianic hopes have been dashed. Their their beloved temple and their nation was doomed. They're confused. They need answers. So they ask in verse 3, of Matthew 24, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, Jesus now gives the longest answer to any question posed to him in the New Testament. By the way, this is why many times Matthew 24 and chapter 25 are called the Olivet Discourse. Now, it's crucial for you to understand That when we approach this text of Scripture, we must approach it with the same hermeneutic or the same system of Bible interpretation that we use all throughout the rest of the Bible. There's no need to change here. So therefore, we would approach this with a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And when you do this, you will see a clear delineation of a sequence of prophetic events that sweep the disciples into the future far beyond their understanding until later on in their life. And to help you get the big picture, 
we can actually divide our Lord's prophetic discourse into three topical categories because there's really three topical sermons here in Matthew 24. And the three headings would simply be first the Gentiles, secondly the Jews, and thirdly the church. Verses 4 through 14 are prophecies concerning the Gentile nations. Verses 15 through 31 are prophecies concerning his covenant people, the Jews. And verses 32 through 51 are prophecies concerning the church. John Phillips makes an interesting observation concerning these three unique topics. And I'll quote this to you. He says, the Lord dealt with his three topics in the order of history. For the first 2000 years of Bible history, God dealt solely with the nations. After the call of Abraham, he dealt supremely with the Jews. The nations were still there, but the divine focus had changed. That period of history also lasted for about 2000 years. For the 2,000 years since Pentecost, he has been focusing on the church. Then he goes on to say, critics of this interpretation say that when we relate the end of Matthew 24 to the church, we imply that the church has to go through the great tribulation. This objection is invalid because the sermon is topical in nature. Each of the three topics is a separate sermonic entity. In dealing with the church, the Lord made no reference to the tribulation at all. And for very good reason. The tribulation will affect the nations and Israel. And thus it is in the first two sections of the sermon that the Lord dealt with that subject. Since it has nothing to do with the church, the tribulation is not mentioned in the third section. End quote. Now again, because I would approach this text like I would all the rest of Scripture with a literal method of interpretation, I ultimately come to the conclusion that Christ is going to come before the millennial kingdom. And therefore, I am unashamedly a premillenarian. And I'll use some of these terms. I'm going to. I'm not going to take time to explain all of them, but a premillennialist is basically one that believes that Christ is going to come and establish his kingdom. I also personally believe that the church will not go through the tribulation, and I would be called a pre-tribulationalist, somebody that believes that the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. Now, I know that there are godly believers that I love and that I respect who differ with me in my position. Many people come to the prophetic literature like Matthew 24 and they resort to a different system of interpretation. They will allegorize the prophetic literature or spiritualize the text. For example, when they come to prophetic literature, they will say that in essence this is describing spiritual battles of good and evil. And that we shouldn't consider it to be anything literal. Whenever you come to references to Israel, it's really a reference to the church. So you wouldn't take it literal that it's Israel. They would say that the millennial kingdom is really nothing more than the church age. And texts relating to the rapture is really nothing more than texts that symbolize God redeeming his people. That there's really no such thing as an antichrist, that there will not be a literal antichrist, but that's just really metaphorical imagery describing false prophets and satanic systems. 
and that when Jesus talks about certain judgments being like birth pains, that's really just hyperbolic language describing Rome conquering Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and on it goes. So many people will hold these positions, by the way, not because of textual uh, or exegetical considerations, but rather because of certain theological views that they hold to which they adhere. Now, it is beyond the scope of this series to critique in detail all of these different positions. However, from time to time, as the text warrants, I will point out what I believe to be some of the fallacies of some of the competing positions. And by the way, I might say that my position has problems. All of the positions have problems because this is a mystery. God hasn't given us all of the answer. You might say that all of the position have holes in their buckets. I just believe that mine has fewer than others. And so with all of my heart, I will preach to you and teach you what I believe is to be truth so that someday I can stand before the Lord and say from the very depths of my heart, I rightly divided the word of God as best I knew how. So all positions have some problems. There's much mystery surrounding Bible prophecy. And we want to be very careful that we don't become proud, that we don't become absolute dogmatists on some things that that may be nothing more than inference. And we certainly want to avoid the shameful um, the shameful calling of names that I've heard from time to time. Eschatology, by the way, should never be considered funda- a fundamental test of Christian orthodoxy. You want to be very careful with that. I mean, unless a position violates the fundamentals of the faith, like, for example, hyperpreterism. And let me just throw that out. If you want to look it up, you can. But sometimes this is referred to as realized eschatology or, quote, full preterism. And these people insist that Christ's second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the great white throne judgment, all of those things are already over with, that all of that is past. They have they don't believe that there is any future hope of Christ's return. They believe that the universe in which we now live is the new heavens and the new earth promised in Second Peter three thirteen and Revelation 21. They believe that sin and Satan will never be eradicated. They believe that at death, believers just simply uh, become an eternally disembodied spirit that passes occasionally into the presence of God. So they deny the future resurrection of the dead. They even deny that Christ was raised bodily from the dead, that he was only raised spiritually and there's no such thing as a bodily return and so on. Well, all of this would put them in the position of heretics. And so to that extent, there, there are some positions where you can judge orthodoxy. But you want to be careful not to confuse hyperpreterism with preterism. By the way, preter is a Latin prefix for past. And the preterists, many people uh, believe this, that um, they believe that all of the tribulation prophecies in Matthew 24 and even in the book of Revelation uh, were all fulfilled in A.D. 70. So all of that is over with. All of it's in the past. And many people hold this view without having the extremes of hyperpreterism. There are others that believe uh, what's called amillennialism. 
ah, meaning there's no, there's no such thing as a millennium, that Christ has already come, that he reigns now as king of kings and lord of lords in a spiritual sense in the hearts of men, that there's no literal thousand year reign as Revelation 20 and other passages would talk about. And that really the next event on the prophetic timetable is that Christ is going to return and immediately after that will be the judgment. There are many people that I love and respect that hold that view. I don't. There are others that believe in what's called post-millennialism. This is a very optimistic view. This is one that believes that post at the end, that Christ is going to come at the end of the millennial kingdom and that the church is going to establish the earthly kingdom and it's going to happen through great preaching and through political means, that ultimately we are going to bring in the kingdom and that there will ultimately be an earthly kingdom, but Christ is going to rule over that kingdom from heaven. Well, these views and others like them uh, coalesce rather well as a system, but their respective systems do not fit the facts of Scripture, nor do they fit the text exegetically. And I believe that only a literal interpretation fits the facts. Nevertheless, we must interact with opposing views with love and civility. Now, stick with me here. As we look at the Old Testament, we can see that it is filled with promises of a coming Messiah, a coming deliverer. There are 333 of those prophecies, to be precise. And since more than 100 of those prophecies were fulfilled literally, at the first coming of Christ, the first advent of Christ, I am just foolish enough to believe that all of the rest of the prophecies will be fulfilled literally as well. So there's no need to spiritualize or to allegorize the prophetic literature. If the plain sense makes good sense, don't fabricate some other sense. Imagine interpreting some of those Old Testament prophecies in a figurative or symbolic way. Imagine Isaiah 7.14, where we read that Christ would be born of a virgin. How would you interpret that in a figurative way? Imagine interpreting Micah 5.2, that he would be born in Bethlehem as some kind of a symbol. Zechariah prophesied that he would enter into Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey in Zechariah 9.9. That he would be forsaken by his closest disciples in 13.7. That he even predicted the exact price of Judas's betrayal. That it would be 30 pieces of silver. As well as what would become of the money. Well, what do you do with that? Are you going to tell me that you just interpret that figuratively because it was prophetic? Isaiah foretold many details of the crucifixion in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. David described the tortures that Jesus would endure on the cross including his last cry to the Father, the piercing of his hands and feet, and the parting of his garments in Psalm 22. He even predicted that none of his bones would be broken in Psalm 34. Now, think with me. Scholars before the New Testament, scholars before Christ, could have interpreted all of these prophecies figuratively. That these are just mere symbols, that this is just mere allegory. But, dear friends, we all know that the New Testament clearly indicates that these prophecies were fulfilled in the most literal way possible. As Jesus said in Matthew 26, 56, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So 
again, a literal interpretation that takes into consideration those figures of speech and those literary devices that are sometimes used will ultimately lead us to a premillennial position. This will naturally emerge from the text. And because I'm convinced that premillennialism alone has genuine exegetical support, that is what I will preach to you with good conscience before the Lord. By the way, as a footnote, even among premillennialists, there are a variety of competing positions on the timing of the rapture, and none of which I find compelling other than the one that I hold, even though all of them have some problems. But it's important to remember that much of eschatology, especially the doctrine of the rapture, is very controversial. And it is dependent upon very finely tuned nuances and inferences in Scripture. By the way, we have the same thing with the doctrine of the Trinity, right? But just because that's the case, we shouldn't ignore these studies, as many people do, and throw up our hands in dismay and say, well, we just can't figure it out, so let's forget it. But whatever position we do take, we want to do so with great care and kindness towards those with whom we differ. And again, my purpose will not be to critique all of the different positions on the rapture or on the millennial reign or whatever. But I will interact with opposing positions from time to time when the text warrants such treatment. Now, back to the text. Enough of all that technical stuff. The disciples say at the end of verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will these things be? In other words, when will you destroy the temple and establish your kingdom? Will it be next week? Maybe next month? When will you destroy the nations and purify Jerusalem? After Passover? Maybe next month? That's their attitude. What will be the sign of your coming? The the parousia in the original language. By the way, that means the presence. It can even mean the the arrival, but it has much more of the meaning of of, of a manifestation. When are you going to manifest yourself as the king? When are you going to ascend the throne of Israel as as our triumphant Messiah king? That's what we want to know. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? The word end in the original language is a compound term denoting the ultimate consummation, the ultimate culmination or completion of a planned series of events. So they're literally saying, what can we look for that will indicate that you will manifest your power and your glory as Israel's Messiah King? What sign will tell us that this age of wickedness and rebellion will be over. Well, again, it's important for you to understand that the disciples now are thinking that these mysterious events are going to happen very shortly in quick succession. Kind of a a single continuum, if you will. They had no idea that Jesus was going to soon leave. And certainly they had no comprehension of the church age that would intervene before his ultimate parousia, his ultimate appearing and manifestation. In fact, in Luke 19:11, the twelve supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, the text says. And you might recall that even after the resurrection, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples asked in Acts 1:6, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? So they could only comprehend 
a swift sequence of dramatic events culminating in the promised messianic kingdom. So beginning in verse four, Jesus begins to answer their questions. But you must understand this. He does so in reverse order. He begins by addressing the signs of his coming. And here we will see that Jesus uses the term parousia in the in the technical sense, referring to his second coming. And in verses four through 14, he describes six very specific signs and he calls them in verse eight birth pangs. These, of course, will occur just prior to his appearing, a sequence of events analogous to a woman entering into labor, events that will increase just like birth pains in severity and in frequency until the messianic kingdom is ultimately birthed. So typical of Old Testament prophecies where God speaks in the second person, often addressing people that weren't even born yet. Jesus now answers the disciples, but in doing so, even in the second person, he's not just speaking to them. He's speaking to all of us, as we've seen all through the Old Testament. He's speaking to all of us and all who will follow, especially those who will be alive in that day of his arrival. By the way. He doesn't answer their question regarding when all of this is going to happen until verse 36. And then he then he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Well, what are these six signs, these six birth pains that he predicted in this first section of his great prophetic discourse? This first division in verses four through 14 that focuses primarily on the Gentile nations. And by the way, we'll go into this in much more detail beginning next week. But let me give you the six signs. I'll give them to you in a summarized fashion. Verses four through five. The first sign will be false messiahs. There will be great deceptions leading to the worship of that ultimate false messiah, the Antichrist. In verses six through the first part of seven, the next sign is nations at war. The third sign in the end of verse seven through verse eight, there will be natural disasters of epic proportions. In verse nine, there will be the persecution of tribulation saints in verses 10 through 13. You will see the defection and betrayal by false believers. And then in verse 14, the sixth sign will be mass evangelism. Now, let's read this. Follow along beginning in verse four so that you get a flavor of the flow here. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations And then the end shall come. Six signs, false messiahs, nations at war, natural disasters of epic proportions, persecution of tribulation saints, 
defection and betrayal by false believers and mass evangelism. Now, dear friends, I would submit to you that what Jesus just said is all future, way beyond the events that took place in A.D. 70. And we will see more of that in the days to follow. Now, indeed, certain aspects of these signs have occurred down through history. But nothing compares to the scope and the severity of these staggering events. And again, these six signs are merely the beginning, Jesus says. They're going to get far more severe and they will increase in frequency, just like labor pains. Now, to insist, as many do, that these events all took place in A.D. 70, when Rome conquered Jerusalem, simply does not fit the facts of Scripture. In fact, if you think about it, birth pains do not occur at conception. Birth pains do not occur during pregnancy. They occur just prior to birth. And therefore, it makes no sense to apply this to the destruction of Jerusalem, an event that occurred at the very beginning of the church age. That makes no sense. At least it doesn't to me. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul reminds us that Christ will return as a thief in the night. In other words, suddenly, unexpectedly. And he uses the same figure of birth pangs that Jesus used here in Matthew 24. And there in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1 through 3, he says, While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So again, friends, we still await these labor pains that will ultimately culminate in the inconceivable and unprecedented catastrophes that Jesus describes. Now, it's also important for you to know that these six, these six signs have an undeniable parallel with the seal and trumpet, I should say with the seal judgments of, of Revelation, book of Revelation. And we can see, for example, and, and by the way, the fact that they parallel the book of Revelation that was written in A.D. 96, way beyond A.D. 70, should be proof enough to say that all of these events didn't find their ultimate fulfillment in the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, there are some that will torture every conceivable historical and exegetical argument to get an earlier an earlier dating of Revelation to somehow refute that, but I have certainly not find that, found that even remotely compelling. But it's interesting in Revelation, and we will study this later, that the Lamb breaks the seals, and the seals no doubt will take years, the trumpets will take weeks, and the bold judgments may take hours, days or hours. And so that would be Analogous here to this whole idea of birth pains. They begin to happen, then they increase in severity as do the trumpet judgments and ultimately those bold judgments. And not only do they increase in severity, but also in frequency. In fact, at the end of those sealed judgments that parallel these judgments here um, that Jesus gives us in the six signs, we see that those sealed judgments are so severe that the people of that day say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And so again, I'm not looking for the wrath of the Lamb. I'm looking for the lover of my soul. I'm looking as the bride for her groom. 
Well, enough of technical introduction. What does this have to do with us today? For a moment, let me address that. Again, dear friends, I believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ for His bride. I believe that the Bible teaches that the Lord could come at any moment, and that's the next thing to happen on the prophetic timetable. And after that, you will have the outpouring of wrath and worldwide tribulation, and ultimately that will result in the inauguration of the kingdom, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that this view is consistent with the New Testament. As I look at the New Testament, I read, for example, in the epistle of James, which, by the way, is probably the earliest of all of the New Testament epistles. He challenged us to establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Peter said something very similar in 1 Peter 4, 7, he said, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 24, the writer says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then in verse 37, he says, Yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. And again, my friends, all through the New Testament, the writers consistently convey the idea that Christ's appearing would be imminent. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul uses personal pronouns indicating that even he himself considered that he might be caught up alive to meet the Lord in the air. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says... We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Even Paul believed that the next thing to happen would be the rapture of the church. In John, or I should say in Revelation 1, in verse 1, um, the Apostle John prefaced his entire prophetic treatise by saying, these things must shortly take place. Beloved, all these amazing promises that Jesus made should stir our hearts to, to holy living, to faith, to be excited about the one who is coming. We are, as Paul said to Timothy, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. In 1 John 2.28, John tells us, and now, little children, abide in him. That when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. My friends, will you be ashamed if He came today? And later on in chapter 3 and verse 3 of 1 John, He says, Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Beloved, again, I don't believe there's anything else that must occur before the Lord comes to snatch us away. And I believe, therefore, that a pre-tribulational view of the rapture preserves this wonderful New Testament doctrine of imminency. A doctrine that I believe is essential to a proper understanding of sanctification. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, and this do, knowing that the time, by the way, this is not chronos time in Greek, it's chiron. In other words, the age, the season, the era. Do this knowing that the era, the season, that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. 
The night is almost gone and the day, a reference to the day of Christ's return, it's, it's at hand, he says. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave or literally walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. See, an an imminent view of the return of, of the Lord increases our sense of readiness and of the need to be holy as He comes before or comes to take us to himself. By the way, Paul used the same imagery of darkness and light in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 9. At the end there, he says, let us who are of the day. And folks, we're of the day, okay? Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now catch this, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, again, think of this. The signs that Jesus describes in Matthew 24 will indeed point to his glorious bodily appearing, that second coming, that time described as uh, ultimately as the wrath of the lamb, that time when when he ultimately reveals himself. But as Christians, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We await the coming of the groom for his bride and the great snatching away. By the way, Paul spent the entire first epistle to the Thessalonians pleading to them. Do you remember this? We went through 1 Thessalonians back, I don't know, a couple of years ago, verse by verse. But he pled with them to be watchful be waiting expectantly for Christ's coming to snatch them away. And he, he constantly said to them to, to encourage one another with that wonderful hope of his imminent return. And yet many of the Thessalonians were confused. We read that false teachers had convinced them that their sufferings and all of their persecutions, all of the things that they were experiencing in that day were really divine judgments associated with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, by the way, an expression that always referred to a time of apocalyptic judgment. And so Paul writes to them in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 3, and he's going to clarify this. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. I believe this is a clear reference to the rapture. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, we ask you... Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ, by the way, could be translated the day of the Lord. By the way, that is how it's translated in some of the older manuscripts. So in other words, he's saying the sufferings that you are now experiencing are not the apocalyptic judgments that will signal the day of the Lord. You haven't missed the rapture. I mean, what comfort would that be? To say that you're going to have to go through all of these things. He's saying you haven't missed that. You see, he's telling them ultimately you're looking for Christ. You're not looking for Antichrist. And he goes on to say in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, 
a reference to the, the day of the Lord. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first, which is clearly a reference to the abomination of desolation that we read about in Daniel 9:27 and so on. So that's not going to happen until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So he's saying, hey, none of that has happened. I mean, what comfort would that be if you knew you had to go through that? All of those things are consistent with the day of the Lord. So relax. Again, you're looking for Christ. You're not looking for Antichrist. And we'll see these amazing truths unfold in weeks to come. Well, I leave you with this this morning. First of all, if you're here without Christ and you know in your heart that all of these things are just silliness to you and that you, you really don't have a relationship with Christ... You don't really love him and worship him. You have never confessed your sins to him. And you've never asked him to be your savior and your Lord. And you certainly don't believe that he's coming again. All I can say to you, dear friend, is that you will repent while there is still time. Because again, he is coming someday and he'll either come as your savior or as your judge. And child of God, for those of you that that love the Lord... Boy, we need to be ready, don't we? We need to be watching. Will He find you watching? Will He find you faithful? What bride would be indifferent towards the unexpected arrival of her groom? And I close with the quote of an old expositor, James Denny. And here's what he says, quote, The hope that Jesus would soon come again It was this hope which, much more than anything, gave its color to primitive Christianity, its unworldliness, its moral intensity, its command of the future even in this life. That attitude of expectation is the bloom of Christian character. He went on to say, the Christian who does not look upward wants or literally lacks one mark of perfection. Again, dear friends, 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Let's bow our heads together. Father, again, we rejoice in what you have revealed to us in your word. And we confess we can't understand all of it. There are nuances. There are inferences that we make, Lord, we try to understand. But Lord, what we do know is this, that someday You're coming again to take us into Yourself. That You've gone away to prepare a place for us. And that You're coming again to take us where You are. And Lord, we want to be ready whenever that time is because we love You and we trust in You. May that be the passion of each and every person within the sound of my voice. And Lord, again, I plead for any sinner who has never confessed You as Savior and Lord. May today be the day of their salvation. May today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth so that they too can look with anxious longing in their heart for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us. For it's in His name that I pray. Amen. 
We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.